Going Linux, episode 278, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. Whether you are new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and its applications and using them to get things done. In this episode, listener feedback. If you want to send us feedback, you can email us at goinglinux at gmail.com or you can send us a voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. Once again, unfortunately, Bill will not be joining us for our episode today, but we have lots of email and a Gone Linux story for you. So let's get started. Our first email is from Kenneth, who writes, It would be nice if you take up the speech about download methods and maybe mention linuxtracker.org, which shares distros using peer-to-peer. Often when downloading from SourceForge, I experience slow download speeds, and that's why I recommend people use peer-to-peer or P2P instead. A benefit is also that if you lose the internet connection, the data is not damaged and you have lots of connections to download, as long as you don't live too far away or have a bad torrent client. Well, thanks, Kenneth. I have a couple of things to offer on this subject. First of all, Peer-to-peer downloading of Linux distros using torrent client to do that is certainly a faster and more secure way of getting your Linux distributions. In addition to the benefits that you outlined, download by way of torrent client also does the checksum automatically to verify that the image that you've downloaded actually matches the one that it has been posted to the website or is contained in the torrent. Um, Now, on the other hand, I looked at linuxtracker.org and it looks like it might be an okay site, but it's really tough to tell with these sites. And George from Tulsa and I had a little exchange on our going Linux Google Plus community about downloading some software that he was looking for. It happened to be the Kexi database program. But let me read you my response to his comments about having some trepidation about downloading from Softpedia, a site that also caters to people who are looking to download software. Uh, George wrote, uh, I found Kexi or Caligra, the office suite that It's part of on Softpedia. Am I right to think of Softpedia in the same league as Two Cows, Downloads, and other sites that is best to avoid? And my response was this, and I think it applies in your situation as well, Kenneth. You are right that it's best to avoid sites like Softpedia. Some of them have been repackaging applications to include what in the Windows world would be called bloatware. It's always best to download applications in order of best to worst. One, from your distribution's package management system. Two, the developer's website. And three, a trusted website. 
That last one is a bit subjective, I know, but if you're on Linux Mint and Ubuntu has what you want, then get it from there. It's upstream from Mint and a trusted site. Similarly, Debian might be a next alternative since it is upstream from Ubuntu. Another alternative is to look in the forums of your distribution or upstream distributions for a PPA, Personal Package Archive, built for the package that you want. Although these have the potential of being sketchy as well, the likelihood is low, and as long as you do your homework, PPAs are like mini-repositories that you can add to your package manager and gain the advantage of automatic updates. So, how that applies to your situation, Kenneth, is this. LinuxTracker.org, I don't know. It may be a legitimate site, and it may have no problem at all. But... My preference is, if you're looking for a Linux distribution, or for that matter, any Linux software, and you have access to the distribution's website or the developer's website, and they offer a torrent file for that. Most Linux distributions today come with a torrent client, so open the torrent package and you can start your download from there. Follow the instructions for the torrent client that's installed in your Linux distribution. And that will have all of the advantages that you cite in your email, Kenneth, with the additional advantage of it being from a trusted site. So if the developer or the distribution doesn't have a torrent, of course, it will take a little bit longer to do the download directly from their site than it would from a torrent. But it's certainly worth, in most cases, the additional time, primarily because of the fact that you are using a trusted source for your software. You really don't want to get into a situation where uh, because you're dealing with open source software, someone has taken that open source license and legitimately modified it, but they've modified it in a way that is intended for malicious use. Certainly, technically, under the license, they have the right to do that. And you also have the right to do your research and avoid that kind of modification to open source software at all costs. So just be very, very careful. Again, I don't know LinuxTracker.org. They may be just fine, but just a word of caution to anyone looking at that site. Um, I would caution away from it if you have other sources, simply because I don't know it. We'll include a link in the show notes anyway to LinuxTracker.org. You make your own decision. Our next email is from Frank, who wrote us about TinyCore Linux. My knowledge of TinyCore is limited to taking a look at it once, just for grins and giggles, plus Dan and Fab's references to it on Linux Outlaws. But here's an unexpected place that uses TinyCore for a commercial product. It's Telecan.com. Now, I know... I have uh, mentioned Telecan.com on this podcast. Uh, if you missed it, it was part of one of the Computer America episodes. So if you were the kind of person who didn't really care for those because it was more like commercial radio than a true podcast, I understand that. But we'll have a link in the show notes to Telecan.com. Continuing with Frank's email. If you scroll to the bottom of the main page, they have a link about open source. Of course, I wouldn't buy one on a bet. They appear grossly overpriced. Uh, yeah, I did notice that their prices were pretty high. They're kind of a specialty uh, computer manufacturer. And uh, yeah, sometimes they will, because they're 
dealing with a specialized market, uh, charge a little bit more for their services, but they do provide some significant support for the people who do buy Telekin computers and fit into their customer demographic. Frank continues, as an aside, I must be in a minority as I miss the spontaneity and unpredictability of the Computer America episodes. Granted, they seldom broke new grounds in geekery, but they were generally amusing. I am also one of those fans who, when I discovered your podcast, went back and listened to all of them. Podcast on. Well, thanks, Frank. And I know there are a few out there who do miss the Computer America episodes. You are in a minority for sure amongst our audience. But if you are interested, we still have a link on our homepage to Computer America. And you can go there and uh, go directly to their website and listen if you wish, online, or if you have satellite radio, they're also on satellite radio as well. I don't think they broadcast terrestrially anymore. Uh, of course, terrestrial radio for them was only in the United States, so it was a limited audience anyway. Again, thanks, Frank. David, a longtime listener from Israel, wrote, Hi, Larry. Hi, Bill. You really shocked me. Last episode, when you mentioned you'd be discussing VeraCrypt, I noted it to myself as I'm still using TrueCrypt, but I'm concerned about its stability and reliability. Then, listening to your VeraCrypt episode today while watching my husky frolic in the dog park, I heard that it was due to a suggestion by, quote, David. No big deal there. There are many of us around. But then heard you reading the email. It started to sound familiar. You remembered an email I wrote two years ago while I have trouble remembering where I put my glasses two minutes ago. <laughs> I am so honored. This is the second time I have given you an idea for an episode. The other was 247 episodes ago, episode 30, which was a round table or actually round Skype discussion inspired by my question on why Linux is free as in beer and how it is maintained and financed. You have double honored me. Thanks. And as always, thanks for the great show and your hard work in sharing your knowledge with us. I guess that having given you an idea in 2008 for an episode and now again in 2015, I'll be due for another in 2022. How many more distros will you have tried by then, Bill? Will you still be with Mint, Larry? One thing for sure, if you're still podcasting, I'll still be listening. Bestest, David, your expat Canadian friend in Israel. Thanks, David. And yeah, I mentioned when I read your email that it was from... A long time ago, and I think you were mentioned in your email that it was a long time before that that you had made the suggestion. But uh, anyway, yes, thanks again. And uh, it just goes to show that uh, we do read these emails. And although we may not act on your suggestions right away, we generally eventually get around to creating an episode if you've suggested a topic that's really good. So uh, have no fear if you make a suggestion and we like it. You'll have an episode on it eventually. Tim wrote, Hello, Larry and Bill. I've recently installed Linux Ubuntu Mate on my old laptop. Things are going well, except I can't get the Google Chrome remote desktop app to work. It's kind of a showstopper for me as I need to remote to a couple of machines using this protocol and remote into the laptop from other machines. Whenever I try to install the program, the progress bar moves along nicely to about 90% mark, then stops. 
I have left it for hours, but no further progress. Am I missing something? Is it a known issue? Are there other ways that I might be able to install the remote app? By the terminal, perhaps. Any pointers would be very greatly appreciated. Thanks for putting out the podcast. I'm going to download a host of them to try and get up to speed a bit faster. Thanks again, Tim. Well, thanks, Tim, and thanks for listening. It sounds like you're a new listener. And regarding the remote desktop for Chrome, it's actually a plug-in for the Chrome browser, so it's not an application that you can install separately can't really download it install it is what I'm saying you really do need to install it from within the Chrome browser I don't know what was causing the problem for you I installed that quite a long time ago so it's possible that they were just having a problem with it I noticed they released a new version of it fairly recently so if you try it again that might work another thing that can stop chrome browser plugins from installing and operating properly is interference between different plugins so what you might try is go into the settings in chrome and disable don't uninstall or remove any of them but disable your existing plugins just temporarily and try installing the remote desktop plug in one more time that might just do it now a word of caution you may still have problems if that indeed was the problem that there was another plug-in interfering with it but what i would suggest in that case is once you have the remote desktop up and configured and running properly then begin to re-enable your other plugins one at a time retest the remote desktop plug-in after each re-enablement and when it stops working again you found the plugin that is the problem now you have a choice which is more important to you the plugin that's causing the problem or the remote desktop plugin that choice is up to you uh, or you can wait until one or the other fixes the issue that's causing the problem if you don't want to wait you can write to the developer and make them aware that there's a problem and perhaps you can contribute to the improvement of this plug-in for you and for everyone else so that's what i would suggest and uh let us know tim write us back let us know how that went and if you got it working and how you did it so that others can learn from your experience as well thanks our next email is from mo and mo writes dear larry and bill thanks so much for your useful and entertaining show which has been a great resource as i learn about linux i've been using linux on a secondary machine for about a year and a half my hope is that when my current macs stop working i will be ready to make the switch for real i've had a lot of fun and i've become unexpectedly addicted to distro hopping so far i've tried crunchbang rip my favorite corora both GNOME and KDE, Mint, Cinnamon, and OpenSUSE. Now I'm running Ubuntu Mate on a Toshiba satellite, and I think I'm going to stay put for a while. However, the distro hopping started as an effort to find a distro which worked with both the touchpad and the wireless card out of the box, and I'm still having touchpad issues in Ubuntu Mate. Here's what I've tried, and sorry for the long email. Yahoo News provides a nice, basic lesson in how to make a startup script to change the touchpad settings. And we'll include a link to that in our show notes. And Mo continues, If you link to this, you should note that it doesn't actually explain how to run the script. I didn't know to add dot slash before the file name. Anyway, I eventually figured that out. 
Yes, uh, Mo, that is what you need to do when running a script from the command line. Any script that you want to run, you type dot slash, then the path and the name of the script, and it will run. If you just type the script name without the dot slash, it's not going to work for you. Dot slash is the command that tells the computer that you are running the script and not just displaying it. Mo continues, these are the changes that I made with sin client. Finger low equals 10. It was 1. Finger high equals 16, which was set at 1. I saw people suggesting much higher numbers, but my touchpad didn't work with all the finger high settings much above 20. He set vertical scroll delta at minus 71. It was at 71. And the horizontal scroll delta at minus 71 as well. And he set that for inverted scrolling. Coasting speed was set at 30 instead of 20, and tap and drag gesture equals zero. It had been on, and that, of course, turns it off. I left everything else the same, created the script, and put it in my startup applications. The first time I rebooted with the startup script in place, the touchpad didn't work at all. I was able to open tilde and run SynClient again, where I saw that there was a line that read touchpad off equals one. I hadn't made any changes to this line, but I entered SynClient touchpad off equals zero, and that worked. And just mo uh, know that when you type SynClient touchpad off equals zero into the terminal directly, that only works for the current logged in session. So when you log off or you turn your computer off and back on again, you have to go back in and run that command again. So add that to your script. Continuing with Mo's email. But then I noticed the touchpad still seemed very sensitive. And I saw that in the SynClient output, finger low was set back to one. I reread the script, leading and re-entering my new setting again for length for finger low as well as adding touchpad off equals zero and reboot it again. There you go. You already did it. Good work, Mo. This time, the touchpad didn't stop working, but the finger low setting did revert to one again. I've tried a couple of times and compared the startup script line by line to the output of SynClient. Everything is the same except for that finger low setting. Any ideas on how can I get this one parameter to stick? Right now, I'm just manually running the script. As a side note, these settings help, but sometimes the cursor still jumps back two lines, and I end up deleting text that I've written. Is there another parameter that I should adjust to try to limit this behavior? I do have palm detect on. Thanks again for the great show and for any advice you may have about this. Mo. Well, Mo, it sounds to me like there's another setting perhaps in a separate script altogether, that is resetting that finger low setting for you. That's one possibility. There may be others. One thing that you might try is to delay the startup of your script for several seconds before it starts up. What that will do is uh, attempt to let other scripts run before yours does, and that way if there is another interfering script, your script will run later and will cause that finger low setting that gets reverted uh, to get switched back to what it is you want. Check through your script as well. Make sure there isn't another finger low setting after the one that you're editing. 
to make sure that there isn't something in your script first that's resetting it to uh, one. But once you've done that, go and try the delayed startup. Now, I know on Linux Mint in the most recent versions, the utility on startup applications allows you to set a um, delay right there in the configuration box that uh, you set up um, for running an application at startup. But on Ubuntu Mate, they haven't uh, implemented that particular utility. So what you'll need to do as the first line of your script after the, de the declaration that it is a script, that comment that is uh, that uh, Tom and I used to call shebang bin bash, type in a line right below that that says sleep space 25. That will give you a 25 second delay before this script completes running. And hopefully that will give enough time so that other scripts will complete before your script finishes running. So um, if that doesn't work for you, if that's not long enough, then you can put a higher number in there and get a longer delay. If it turns out to work for you, then what I would suggest is you test reducing that number gradually and retesting and see if you can get it to a minimum number that reliably allows the script to still run after all the other scripts have worked. So if that works for you, great. If it doesn't, let us know by email or type into our Google Plus community, and I'm sure there will be others who have other suggestions for you as well. Thanks, Mo. Next up is Richard, who wrote with a follow-up to a previous email. Hey, Larry and Bill, thanks for sharing my email on the show. To just respond to the question Bill had as to whether I could have modified a System76 machine to what I need, what's lacking for me personally is a combination of weight, size, and battery life. On the last especially, they seem to be lacking. I am on the go all the time, and it means a lot to me, so that is the main thing. I do hope System76 comes out with an ultra-portable with long battery life in the future. I always check them and others that make Linux machines first, as I'd like to support them if I can. Reviews give the X250 15 hours with the 6L battery. Not sure if I'm getting that or not since I just got mine, but even half that is much more than what System76 offers as of now. Plus, it has a removable battery, so I can get a second battery to plug it in for heavy use away from an outlet. Please correct me and make me regret my purchase if I'm wrong. Richard. Well, Richard, uh, yeah, the X250 does have a long battery life. I wouldn't expect that you're getting 15 hours. Um, the Linux power management on laptops still needs a bit of development and a bit of work. So if you're a developer out there and can help with that, please do. Uh, Linux doesn't seem to get as long a battery life as you can get from Windows. The software seems to be a little more optimized on Windows to managing the battery a little bit better. Uh, similarly, on an Apple computer, if you've installed Linux on there, you will notice that on that same hardware between OS X software and Linux, you probably don't get the same level of battery life on Linux as you get from OS X. That's primarily because the folks at Apple have put a lot of effort into uh, implementing their software in a way that optimizes battery life. Having said that, though, the X250 
compared with System76 specs, you'll notice that the, the X250 spec is based on the assumption that you're running Windows software and using that highly optimized power management. And the System76 specs are assuming that you're running Ubuntu, which is what they provide on their computers. And so the specs are not comparing apples with apples. So you really do need to find a spec on the internet of somebody who's running a Linux distribution on the X250, or just since you already own one based on your own personal experience, and then compare that battery life with what the System76 specs are before making a judgment on whether or not System76 laptops and ultrabooks have uh, a, an equivalent battery life to the model that you're looking at or the one you already have purchased in your case. So uh, for those of you who are looking for computers and you're thinking about whether or not you should purchase one with Linux pre-installed or whether you should install Linux on a laptop that comes pre-installed with Windows or other software, bear in mind that you're not comparing the specs apples and apples when it comes to battery life. So do your research on the internet about battery life. And Richard, when you have an opportunity to experiment with your laptop and actually determine what kind of battery life you get running Linux on it, let us know. We'd be interested in providing that information to our listeners so that if they too are interested in purchasing a Lenovo X250, uh, how much of that 15 hours battery life that's their claim do you actually get when running Linux on that particular computer? Put it in an email to us or feel free to go to the Going Linux Google Plus community and post it there. That would give our entire listening community access to it. And if you haven't been on the Going Linux Google Plus community, it's right there on our website. Paul wrote to us from North Texas, where Paul is. Larry, Bill, thanks for your help regarding the script problem I had in Firefox. I added the extra one megabyte of system RAM, and that made all the difference in the world to my system performance. Now I am using 1.5 megabytes of system RAM, which is most likely still a low resource for more experienced users like yourself. Also, I finally removed Firefox and started browsing in Chrome exclusively. I really like the Chrome experience and haven't had any more script problems. Thanks for your suggestion and follow-up. I will continue to listen to you and learn from you both, Paul. Well, thanks, Paul. We appreciate the feedback, and we appreciate you getting back to us and letting us know how things went with our suggestions. We always like that. Now our Gone Linux story. This one's from George from Tulsa. So far, I'm doing great with my decision to move 100% to Linux, Ubuntu as it happens. Have converted a co-worker, but at this point, both of us still have our Mac laptops standing by. George, I'm not going to say anything to Allison Sheridan about your move to Linux. <laughs> I know you're still a Mac user. Okay. A big impediment in moving before was Microsoft Office. We exchanged documents with our outside enterprises, attorneys, and our own outside law firm. LibreOffice 4.4.2, that is the most recent version distributed by Ubuntu, is compatible enough. That's an improvement from my prior tests. 
though I'm fearful of what Microsoft will do with its ongoing releases of Office, which, since it is moving all users to a subscription model, can turn compatibility into an even more elusive target. Anyway, were there reasons to shift from LibreOffice to Apache OpenOffice? I'd do that before we get to embedded into LibreOffice. However, after Bill's mention of his, quote, test of OpenOffice, I googled for comparisons. I googled OpenOffice screenshots. If there's any major differences, they weren't obvious. I have nothing against OpenOffice now that it's returned to, quote, open. I just didn't see any justification moving from LibreOffice that conveniently comes with and updates by Ubuntu. On a more general Linux topic, in my earlier stabs at moving to Linux, the huge varieties of distros seemed to me to be an impediment to Linux success. Reviewers' comments were more about distros than about what to do with them once installed. Lots of reviews discussed, yes, the essential issue of did the distro install, how easy was the install, and what stock applications installed with it. End of review. Sure, it's essential that a distro install and work. I tried Kubuntu 15.04 with its lovely Plasma desktop and found the Plasma desktop not ready for prime time. I think that's an important point, but since I'm not a Linux Kubuntu Plasma expert, I don't think I have the experience to be broadcasting it. Well, uh, George, uh, your experience kind of aligns with other experience that I've heard, and the main point here is that if it doesn't work for you, then it's not the one for you, quite frankly. Continuing with George's email. Circling back to OpenOffice versus LibreOffice. Yep, I'm sure OpenOffice installs and works. There may even be some minor differences in UI. But unless there's a compelling case for jettisoning LibreOffice that comes with many distros and gives a common base of shared experiences for Linux users, why? Just a newbie question. George. Well, George already has our response by email, but let me read it here because it does have value for others struggling with the same question, what's the difference between LibreOffice and OpenOffice, and why would I prefer one over the other? I wrote to George, Hi George, congrats on the move to open source. There is absolutely no reason to switch from LibreOffice to OpenOffice or vice versa, especially if LibreOffice is provided in your distribution's repositories. In fact, there's a compelling reason to stay on whichever your distribution provides by default. That reason is that it is supported by your distribution. They have tested it with the distro, perhaps tweaked it to make it work better with the distro, and provide automatic security updates, all without you having to do a thing. The reason they look and act alike is because they're from the same original code base. There are a few technical details and a few licensing details that are different, but for most intents and purposes, they are completely interchangeable. As I understand it, the incompatibility between the licenses does not let Apache's OpenOffice use improvements from LibreOffice, but LibreOffice can freely incorporate anything that it likes from OpenOffice. This means that the two could theoretically become more different over time. Right now, they are so similar that you can't really tell the difference. I'm sticking with LibreOffice for all the reasons I've just mentioned. One more thing you should know. When you save a file that you want to share with a user of Microsoft Office. Save it as .ppt, .doc, or .xls instead of .pptx, 
.docx or .slxx. Ironically, Microsoft's implementation of the, quote, open standard in document formats actually deviates from the established ISO standard. In my mind, I think that means they don't meet the standard at all. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, since the Microsoft Office.ppt, .doc, and .xls are not changing, both LibreOffice and OpenOffice have successfully reverse-engineered the older formats and can save to those formats with more compatibility than the newer, constantly changing formats. Microsoft Office 2010, 2013, and even Office Online, Office 365, can open the .ppt, .doc, and .xls files and can convert them, if necessary, to the newer format. In my experience, most Microsoft Office users will give the file back in the format they got it in, as long as it's compatible with the software application. If you find it necessary, you can request files from those users in the older formats to ensure compatibility. Thanks for listening. And George, that summarizes our advice. Let us know if our suggestions have been helpful. And one more thing, George. Thanks also for your contributions to the show. Good luck with your continued use of Linux and your eventual move, I'm sure, to not having to have those Macintosh laptops sitting around with OS X on them just for security's sake. Eventually, it happens to all of us. Good luck, George. And that's it for our listener feedback episode for today. Until next time, go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and to subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. If you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.